for Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, measuring the metrics of loneliness and other impacts of pandemic life. Do you see yourself as being serene? A free phone app from the UA College of Nursing wants to help you find better emotional and mental health. How Camp Cooper is expanding their learning center online and in the desert. And Stories That Soar offers a song about new friendships written by a fifth grader. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. We are living in an unprecedented time, one that is causing some profound psychological changes at a faster rate than many expected. An ongoing data collection project through the UA Department of Psychiatry is documenting this through a series of monthly surveys that are taken by 1,000 volunteers across the nation. Among the topics these surveys inquire about are loneliness, stress, sleep habits, and a person's willingness to take a coronavirus vaccine. Here to explain is William Scott Kilgore, Ph.D., a UA professor of psychiatry, psychology, and medical imaging. We sort of switched gears uh, during the pandemic. Uh, Once I saw what was happening back in March, I realized that this was going to be a big deal. and We needed to start refocusing the lab, especially since uh, we were looking like we were going to be shutting down and everybody was going to work from home. I thought, why don't we go ahead and put in... Uh, a survey and start to find out how people are responding to the pandemic itself. So we put together a whole bunch of questionnaires and a lot of different kinds of questions about the pandemic and how people were feeling and started collecting data on that. But a lot of these areas were brand new to me. I had not really delved into them before since we were having people stay at home and socially isolate. It occurred to me that one of the biggest things we're going to deal with here is loneliness. So we put in the loneliness scale. Explain how that scale runs, and in comparison to some of the other topics that you have studied, is loneliness difficult to quantify? Well, this is a a standardized metric that has been used in many different uh, studies over the years. So we focused in on one called the UCLA Loneliness Scale, and it's a 20-item scale. It has uh, a lot of different questions about how you feel when you're alone, how you feel uh, if you... Uh, have somebody that you can turn to and talk to about problems? Uh, do you feel close to other people? Do you feel left out in your life? Uh, do you feel like you have good relationships with other people? And then you just rate how you feel on those 20 items, and it gives you a nice standardized score that tells you probably uh, how lonely you are compared to other people. And so we used a cutoff score Uh, that has been published previously to identify people that were probably experiencing some level of loneliness in their life. What sorts of results have you been seeing? I mean, what can you share from the data that you've collected uh, at this point? Yeah, we started collecting the data back in April of this year once we realized that uh, that the pandemic was going to be a a very big deal. And we've done that every single month since then. So we get about 1,000 people to take our survey each month Uh, And we have six months of data that we've analyzed fairly intensively now. And we looked at their loneliness scores month by month. And what we've seen is that uh, as the pandemic has continued, 
uh, the rates of loneliness have continued to increase uh, month by month, almost in a linear pattern. Uh, we know that people were feeling lonely before the pandemic, that compared to your rates 20 years ago, most people say that they're much more lonely than they used to be. But once the pandemic began, we saw that it really surged in that first month that we all had to stay home and socially isolate. But then people started to realize that the pandemic wasn't going anywhere and it was continuing on uh, month by month. So we divided our sample out into those who were under a lockdown and those who were not under lockdown status at the time that we collected data. And what we found was that those who were under lockdown are showing uh, a much more severe increase in loneliness. So early on, back in April, about 43% of the population was meeting a cutoff that said that they had high loneliness. Over that six-month period, that 43% has now increased up to about 64% of those who are under lockdown are reporting that they're having a, a very high level of loneliness. But even those that are not under lockdown are also showing loneliness. We're still getting rates about uh, half the population that's not under lockdown is also reporting lonely. So really, everybody is feeling much more lonely than they did before the pandemic at this point. There are those people that I'm sure you probably know some or you've seen it online, people who say, I can stay alone forever, that I'm, I'm OK with this. And if anything, people who feel relieved of the social mm, obligations that they used to have pre-pandemic. And that's the thing with loneliness is that, uh, you know, loneliness is not simply just the social isolation. It's not just being away from people. It's really how you interpret that. You know, so for some people, they like being alone and they thrive being alone. And so it really isn't a problem for them. But for the person who perceives the world as being non-supportive, as being as though they don't have uh, enough friends or family or people that love and support them, those are the people that feel lonely. And so that's really how we define loneliness is sort of like a hunger for that social contact, a hunger for that, that, that love and that support from other people. And there are individual differences. Some people just don't need as much of that as others. Tell me a little bit about how pandemic sleep habits are changing and uh, how that's affecting people. Well, we conducted a, another study several months ago where we were looking at how people sleep and one of the questionnaires we gave them looked at the fears that they had of the pandemic. We hypothesized that, you know, being afraid of the virus was probably going to be affecting uh, people's mental health, that that fear was going to lead to uh, anxiety and depression and even suicidal ideation. And so one of the things we looked at was the role that lack of sleep may play in that suicidal ideation. And so we collected data on people's insomnia. And what we found was that, yes, if you're more afraid of the pandemic, you also tended to be higher in your suicidal thinking. But really, most of that was being driven by your sleep habits. So if you were getting a good night of sleep every night, those individuals uh, really didn't seem to be having as much suicidal thinking. But if you were not sleeping well, it really is the fears driving your, your sleep problems. And then those sleep problems in turn influencing uh, your mental health and your suicidal ideation. And we've been looking at resilience during the pandemic, and one of the major factors in that resilience and your ability to bounce back from uh, this terrible thing that we've all gone through is the amount of sleep that you're getting. People who are sleeping better are actually coping more effectively. They have you know, less depression, less anxiety, uh, and a more positive outlook overall. 
as varied as the experiences that people are having living through this time in history, there's just as many opinions on how safe uh, the vaccine is going to be, what people want it, people who are willing to take it, people who are not willing to take it. But what kind of data have you seen regarding how people are reacting to the availability of a vaccine against coronavirus? Yeah, we started collecting those data uh, last month. We wanted to find out in the very first month that the vaccine became available, how were people feeling about it? And so we uh, administered a a survey to uh, about a thousand people last month to get their opinions on it. And what we were finding is about half of people say that they're not willing to get the vaccine, even if it became available to them, that they would not be willing to take it at this time. And then we also ask a question like, how afraid are you of the vaccine? And again, about 40% of people, 45% or so, said that they were very afraid of taking the vaccine. So there's a lot of fears and a lot of concerns out there. So what we found in the survey was that uh, like being afraid to take the vaccine was actually highly predicted by greater political conservatism. So the more conservative you were, the more afraid you were to take the vaccine and being female. So females were actually less willing to to uh, take the vaccine itself and also being of non-white ethnicity, uh, having greater anxiety and a lower annual income and lower formal education. So that was the, the various factors that when you combine them together, those are the people that said they were most afraid of, of the vaccine. On the other hand, the willingness to actually take the vaccine if it's offered to you was predicted again by uh, being more liberal, uh, being uh having a greater fear of contracting the virus itself, being male, having more education, having higher income, and having less psychological resilience, and being white and older. So uh, kind of a combination of different factors that play into it, but the strongest one really was your political uh, liberal versus conservatism seemed to be driving most of it. We're doing another survey now where we're going to ask more questions about that. And another question we're adding in this time is whether you're planning to get pregnant or breastfeeding, which could be driving some of that as well. There could be some concerns that women may be having that we hadn't considered in the last survey. So we're trying to throw more more questions in there to get a better picture this time around. My guest was William Scott Kilgore, Ph.D., a professor of psychiatry, psychology, and medical imaging, and the director of the SCAN Lab at the University of Arizona. Too often, we use the screens in our life for things that might ultimately be bad for us. You can't find the verb doom-scrolling in the dictionary yet, but the editors at Merriam-Webster say it's a leading contender for inclusion. But what about adding something positive to your phone's capabilities right now, something that is focused on self-care. See Me Serene is a free guided imagery app designed to help with relaxation, calm, and maybe taking a short break from the reality of 2021. Here to tell us more is Professor Judith Gordon, the Associate Dean for Research in the UA College of Nursing. We realized there was a need to help people who were stuck indoors and inside, especially at the time when lots of people were on lockdown. And the team of researchers who worked on this project had expertise in dealing with people who were experiencing mental health effects of isolation, people with expertise in guided imagery, people with expertise in 
designing uh, apps um, and people who had uh, expertise in measuring stress. And so it was a really great partnership between people from multiple disciplines all coming together to try to help people get through a particularly difficult time. And for those in our audience who are asking, what is a guided imagery anything, let alone an app? How does guided imagery work? Sure. <laughs> yes, they would not be alone. Most people don't know what guided imagery is. Um, in our team, we like to call it enhanced visualization. And so basically, it is a multi-sensory experience where you listen to audios of somebody describing a very immersive experience. So it's not just what a situation looks like, but it also includes the sounds you might hear and the smells that might be in the air or taste, tactile situations and the emotions that you might be feeling in that specific situation. So it requires of the user some time to concentrate on the images, to listen to the descriptions, and to use their imagination to connect with those other sensory uh, inputs. Absolutely. What we've done is we've tried to create lots of different guided imagery audio files, as we call them, that represent a wide variety of locations or scenes or activities that many people might enjoy. So, for example, laying on the beach or hiking in the mountains or canoeing on a lake or taking your dog to the dog park. So it's things that would appeal to many people and that we felt that uh, many people might not be able to engage in because of the pandemic. It basically is good if you can use it in a quiet environment but what we also have found is that as people listen to the files um, over and over again, they basically start to practice them and they can kind of internalize them. So it, they can call forth um, the, the emotions and the relaxation and the experience, um, even if they're not listening to the file. So they can sort of mentally call up those feelings at, at any time. The app was made available to the public, I believe, in September for free. And I want to know what kind of response you got and how has your user base grown in that time? So we don't do any kind of paid advertising on the app um, because it was created as part of a research study. And so uh, we did um, get the word out through social media and we got um, a lot of interest. We were looking to recruit 100 participants in our study, and we easily met our goal in recruiting for the study. And we have had um, over 1,000 downloads of the app. We've gotten a lot of very positive feedback. Participants in the study um, have helped us identify some glitches that we've been able to fix. And then they've also provided some really wonderful suggestions for improving the app that we hope to be able to implement uh, sometime in the future. Do you feel like the project has been successful in meeting the goal you had of helping people with their emotional and mental health during the pandemic? 
We'd like to think that um, we have we have not completed our data analysis. So as I said, we conducted a, uh, a pilot study, and we have collected um, survey data on all those participants, plus usage data uh, of the app and their health status um, over time of using the app. And we have also collected biological markers of stress from those participants. And so we've just begun analyzing all those data, and we hope in the next couple of months that we will uh, have completed that and be able to see uh, from those data if they agree with the anecdotal data that we've received, uh, that the app does appear to be helping people uh, cope. Judith Gordon is a professor and the associate dean for research in the UA College of Nursing. We talked about See Me Serene, an app that you can download and use for free. It's available through Google. Since the 1970s, the Cooper Center, a specialized learning camp west of Tucson, has been offering kids the chance to safely explore the great outdoors and, in the process, how to be good shepherds to these places. Next, Tony Paniagua talks to the center's director about opportunities that our past and future present. Colin, what is Camp Cooper all about for those people who may not have heard about it in the past? Camp Cooper is a partnership between uh, Tucson Unified School District and the University of Arizona College of Education. The main program is an outdoor center that is about 20 miles west of Tucson in the Tucson Mountains. And uh, over 130,000 Tucsonans and Southern Arizonans have visited Camp Cooper for programs that are focused on uh, exploring the ecology of the Sonoran Desert. And so all of our programs focus on building emotional connections for children with the natural world, uh, providing them with ecological understandings, and then inspiring them to live more sustainably in our community. You know, a big part of it is just exploring the wonders of the Sonoran Desert. And so helping students to use their observational skills and their senses to explore and discover all of the amazing things that our desert has to offer. For many of them, it's their first experience uh, in the desert. The the ecology content part of it is really about foundational ideas about how the environment works. And so how does energy move through natural systems? How do living and non-living things interact with each other? Uh, These are basic ideas, um, foundational ideas, that will allow students to understand more complicated concepts about uh, where we live. How has the pandemic affected you uh, over the past almost one year now? So the pandemic has really had a a drastic impact on what Cooper Center is all about. In March of last year, uh, we closed down our programs in conjunction with university closures and school district closures, and we have had no in-person programs since that time. What we have been able to do is pivot into doing virtual field trip experiences. We've got three amazing educators on our team this year, 
and we worked together to create experiences that would be fun and engaging while also still sharing the wonders of the Sonoran Desert as best we can through a virtual uh, experience. We're also recording content that teachers can access on demand, teachers and even families can access on demand. Uh, and then there are other supplementary materials that we're providing to go along with these experiences. And in spite of the fact that you haven't had any students there physically during the pandemic, you are preparing for the future at the Cooper Center with some construction that's underway. Can you tell us about that, please? One of the silver linings of the pandemic is that we have been able to focus on facility improvements. We started with bathrooms and showers because it is the limiting factor at Camp Cooper, and we will be able to install sustainable systems that will practice what we preach with our programs. It will allow us to uh, grow uh, the number of students and groups that we can serve in a year. We'll move on to renovated sleeping cabins, kitchen, classroom space. I should also say that it's really important for us to build our facilities to be more accessible and inclusive of differently abled learners and guests as well. And on that note, Colin, how much of a difference do you think Camp Cooper has made over the past few decades, especially when we think about so many kids that have grown up in this vast, fascinating region of the Sonoran Desert and yet have really never ventured very far beyond their inner city neighborhoods? You know, this is my 18th year at Camp Cooper, and one of the things that amazed me from the first day was how many of the students, when they get off the bus and arrive at the camp, were just kind of anxious and nervous about being out in the desert. You know, they think there's a rattlesnake under every rock, and they think every jumping cactus is out to get them, right? And so it's huge for a kid who's never been out of his neighborhood to be able to spend a day in the desert, to sit around the campfire at night with their classmates. It's transformational. It's so memorable. I go into, you know, a lot of places here in Tucson and mention Camp Cooper, and the people that have experienced it, their eyes just light up. They remember it very clearly. And we think of Tucson and Southern Arizona as a pretty conservation-minded, environmentally friendly community. And I like to believe that experiences at Camp Cooper are a part of that because you can't think about protecting the natural world and being responsible with resources if you don't have a personal connection with these natural systems that we're all a part of. And so I think it starts at home. It's so difficult to change our behaviors as adults when it comes to things like living more lightly on our planet. But when you're working with children and if they're experiencing it and learning it as they go, then they will grow up to be more environmentally responsible than we in our generation have ever been. Okay, Colin, wait. Thank you very much and good luck as you move forward in your next chapter over at Camp Cooper. The number of students interacting with the Cooper Center's virtual learning expands each semester. Colin Wade emphasizes that the center's services are available to any interested educator or family. You can connect at coopercenter.arizona.edu. The Tucson nonprofit Literacy Connects sponsors a group of artists dedicated to helping young writers and our community explore the power and possibility of bringing their stories to life. It's called Stories That Soar, and next we'll hear one set to music, written by Minerva, 
a fifth grader at Sam Hughes Elementary. It's called The Silly Man. I am a silly man. I am a happy man. I make the children laugh. I make the cats dance and the dogs sing. People call me the silly man. I am kind, gentle, and patient. When I go walking down the street, I wear stilts and juggle balls. When I go walking down the street, I make people happy. And that makes me happy. One day I was walking down the street And all the children came running Except one When I was in the store All the children came running Except for one Then I came up to the child Who didn't come to me so she seems sad and lonely so I asked her what the matter was and she said that she had moved here from a different state and didn't have any friends and didn't know why everybody came and ran to me So I told her that they came to me because I made them laugh. And I told stories and laughed at their jokes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I told her she could call me the silly man like everybody else. And then she hugged me. And then she hugged me and told me her name was Martha. So I introduced Martha to a girl named Tina and they became fast friends. And when I came walking down the street, all the children ran to me, including Martha. And when I was in the store, all the children ran to me, including Martha, including Martha. The lyricist was Minerva, a fifth grader at Sam Hughes Elementary. It was produced by the team at Stories That Soar. Interested student-age writers can submit their stories now to the Magic Box Story Portal at literacyconnects.org. And maybe one day you'll hear it on this show. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.
Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.